Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives. It's our podcast about the ideas that are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Venora Bennett, and today we're discussing the challenges faced by refugees and the countries and communities that host them. We'll be looking at how international organisations and the private sector can support them both. Our guest today is Daphne Jayasinghe, Economic Recovery and Development Policy Advisor at the International Rescue Committee. Now, we usually start our discussions on pocket economics by defining our terms. So who actually qualifies as a refugee? A refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. He or she has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group. Daphne, that's the UN definition of refugees. Does it make sense to you? Do we need to add asylum seekers or internally displaced persons to the mix too? Or are those old distinctions between categories even relevant anymore? Well, I think it's very important as a humanitarian organisation to um, recognise the the broad range of people that are affected by conflict, persecution and disaster and the vulnerabilities that they face. Um, and so the IRC is uh, does work with asylum seekers, with vulnerable populations, with host communities um, and with internally displaced populations as well. And in fact, if you uh, take the UNHCR definition of forcibly displaced persons, that extends to 65.6 million individuals at the end of 2016. So that's a much bigger number than the number of refugees alone. Yeah, that is a huge number. Wow, 65.5 million people. Um, In some of the countries where the EBRD works, uh, Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon and Greece um, are the ones that come to my mind. Uh, They're hosting millions of refugees at the moment. How are those countries coping? Are they coping? Well, those countries have extended enormous generosity to um, refugees by opening their doors Um, and that has taken a real huge toll on their infrastructure, on public services. Um, For Jordan, for for example, they've uh, increased their population by 20%. Um, And so, yes, it it, it has been a struggle and it can be. And I think the global community really has a responsibility to recognise that that, that generosity and and that responsibility that these countries have taken as as host countries and really extend the support that they need to build their infrastructure to um, to also think about the unemployment of their host communities to think about the knock-on effect on their host communities as well as the refugees and support them in hosting uh, refugees um, and I think there's a number of ways to do that I mean that there's the kind of immediate response that that is being supported, that the short-term um, basic needs or survival that people need support in. But there's also the longer-term economic inclusion work that those those um, those host countries are currently exploring and and um, and supporting. Um, and there's a real responsibility from donors from um, multilaterals um, like the EBRD to sort of work with those host governments to explore ways to um, economically include refugees. That's that's very interesting. Um, I, I like the idea that uh, the, the world should be sharing the burden a bit more and maybe a bit more intelligently. Let's come back to the idea of economic inclusion. 
Could you maybe just tell me now how the current number of refugees that you're looking at compare with those in recent decades? Well, for refugees specifically, um, so not the forcibly displaced persons uh, category that I mentioned before, um, at the end of 2016, it was around 17.2 million. Um, that was up by a million from the end of 2015. What we've seen in the recent past is uh, huge numbers displaced. So we saw the millionth person crossing the border in Bangladesh um, at the end of, of last year and the, the consequences for displacement in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, again, hosting huge numbers of people. Um, we've seen uh, mass migration into Europe as well. And so the the, the numbers have an increase, but the scale of the problem is, is increasing. I see. Um, I've seen that you've, you've written that the average refugee is displaced for about a decade. So there is an immediate challenge in providing them with food and shelter and so on. But there's also this long-term challenge, isn't there? Because many of them are basically here to stay wherever they end up. Um, and so this is where we come back to your thoughts about economic inclusion Sure, yeah, no, that's right. I think what we have been seeing is that the average displacement can be 20 to 30 years for uh, a refugee. And so we do have to think about both the immediate short-term needs, the survival or, or basic needs that we need to support um, displaced populations with. That might be obviously food and water and shelter, but there's also the longer-term needs, uh, the needs around opportunities, economic opportunities, sort of rebuilding their lives. The IRC, we like to talk about working across the arc of the crisis from, from that Im immediate emergency response to um, integration and resettlement. Um, and so we do think very carefully about how we can support the communities we work with in rebuilding their lives, um, in their quest for a job in their opportunities in training in apprenticeships you know what is it that it takes to access the labor market um, and so we do that in a number of ways uh, we have in in for example in in Lebanon and Jordan we have livelihood centers where we work with vulnerable communities including host populations to uh, train them in um, enterprise development in uh, CV writing in kind of the the, the things that we take for granted about finding a job, but finding a job in a new country, but also combining that with particular vulnerabilities. So we work with a lot of women, for example, who might need support for um, gender-based violence. They might need legal advice. They might need advice about how to access childcare facilities. They might need a creche. Um, those are all things that we incorporate into our livelihood centre. And there's I visited a community centre in Jordan just the week before last. Um, and interestingly, uh, that's become known as the Hope Centre. Um, not, not, it's not given that name by us, but it's been given that title because it's a centre where people can go and access health services. They can go and get ed advice on how to set up their enterprise. There's a recreation room. They can get their hair done if they wanted to. You know, there's a lot of opportunities to come and just regain some sense of normality. Um, and that's very, very important for people who've gone through a lot of trauma and crisis. So it sounds like it's the um, end of the road for the old fashioned refugee camp. Uh, but what do local people think in a host country when all these job seekers having acquired new skills in centres um, come looking for jobs on their patch? No, there's absolutely um, a real uh, risk of social tension and uh, we're very mindful of the importance of social cohesion as are host governments. 
Um, and I think one way that we address that is, as I said, we work with vulnerable host populations as well as refugees and asylum seekers. So we um, have a really interesting um, project in Amman uh, that we partner with Citibank on, where we provide enterprise training for young people in the capital, um, and that includes refugees and host communities, on how to develop their enterprise, you know, what it would take to, to build their sort of dream. Um, and for those who, who are successful, they'll receive a business grant. Um, and so we're very mindful of that. Something that I have noticed in some of the places that we work is that we have a lot of volunteers from the host community as well. As much as there can be um, tensions, there can also be a, a real uh, welcoming response and I would say that comes from sort of neighbours but it also comes from local business as well who might really appreciate the the um, custom that refugees are bringing to their to their shops and to their businesses um, and so yes um, that's right there can be social tensions but there can also be really um, there can be great moments of social cohesion as well. Yeah, I suppose that the, the real aim here is to make sure everyone knows that this kind of thinking can bring long-term benefits to both communities. Just a reminder, you're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help to change people's lives. I'm Venora Bennett, and today our guest is Daphne Jayasinghe, and we're discussing how we can better support refugees. Daphne, what's the private sector's role here? What can it do to help support refugees and their hosts? The private sector has an enormous role to play in supporting refugees. Um, they can and, and the host countries. They can support them through innovation, um, through through employment. Uh, the majority of jobs created in the countries where we work are created by the private sector, so they're vital as an employer. Um, they can also develop important services and products designed for refugees. Um, so we're really glad to see the way in which the private sector have stepped up to respond to um, to the increase in refugees and really great to see the EBRD playing an important role in facilitating that that um, introduction of the private sector. Um, I think some of the the project the projects that are needed to support refu refugees uh, particularly around infrastructure require private finance um, and so we work very closely in partnership with the private sector um, for example we have a project with Western Union um, at the moment in Jordan where we're where we're exploring the opportunities um, around business process outsourcing uh, for refugees and that's that's particularly uh, attractive employment opportunity for women who can do it online um, they also play an important role in changing the humanitarian response, if you like. Um, there's been real advances that mean that we will um, use more mobile money to deliver cash, for example, in an emergency. So a huma humanitarian cash Does transfer. mobile money mean you get it on your mobile phone? Yes, yeah. that's right. And so we'll work very closely with mobile operators to do that. And presumably that helps both um, refugees and the unbanked poor in, in any given country get better access to banking. And so it's that thing we were talking about. Absolutely. No, that's exactly right. So I think where we can see an increase, for example, in digital infrastructure, um, then it will benefit all of the communities, um, particularly remote communities who might not have had digital access previously. 
Um, so that's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, we've been very aware at the EBRD of some amazing innovations in Jordan. Um, but I guess this is happening through, throughout the community where, where, where there are refugees and where pe people are working with them. Um, why do you think the thinking has started to shift away from the refugee camp paradigm and towards the um, help refugees be integrated into communities? Uh, what, what, what was the eureka moment and, and uh, how do we get where we are now? I mean, I think that's a necessary reality that given the length of crisis, the protracted length of crisis and uh, the, the sheer numbers, that we are seeing more refugees out of camps and in urban settings. Um, that's a much more uh, familiar context that w for us to work in now. Um, I think that's partly to do with the length of displacement. As people are displaced for longer periods, they're likely to move out of camps and into cities and m move into cities alongside the, the local host uh, population as well. Um, and so that has really changed the approach to um, humanitarian work. We work much more in urban environments now. And so um, things like economic inclusion, um, jobs, um, working with new municipalities are vital to our humanitarian response. And what qualities in a host nation make it best able to cope with one of these complex situations um, in, with refugees, with new ideas about economic inclusion, with the private sector, with the public sector, with everyone playing a part? No, that's a really great question. I think what we see is, as I said, the importance of an environment where there's inclusive access to the labour market for refugees. And what that really means is there's an enabling environment for micro enterprise, for example, if, if refugees are seeking to establish their own business, is that easy to do? Have they got access to it? Have they got access to the finance that they need to set that up? Is there good financial inclusion? Um, is the infrastructure right? Uh, as I mentioned, uh, more and more jobs re rely on technology. Is the digital infrastructure available? For that um, and is the environment right for um, refugees to legally access work is there availability of work permits across sectors so that skilled refugees can take advantage of the opportunity for example to set up as an accountant um, or, or um, scientists can take advantage of opportunities in the sciences now you know those are all challenges that we encounter in different contexts and so to make uh, the environment right for economic inclusion. Those are all characteristics that we like to see. Thank you very much, Daphne. That's unfortunately all we have time for today. If you're interested in learning more about the EBRD's Refugee Response Plan, you can visit ebrd.com. Meanwhile, share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com forward slash podcast to download previous episodes. And remember that reviewing and rating Pocket Economics helps others to find it. Until next time, goodbye.